Yeah, I was in the car and I was like, are you kidding me that you're telling me like this right now? We've postponed that podcast because I haven't seen the book. And she was like, ooh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well. Uh, She sends her love, by the way. Oh, totally. I know 20 years in, this is just like a funny story. I know. Hey there, and welcome to the Crafters Podcast. I'm Vicki Howell. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. They are there for all that hands-free entertainment that you might need while you are making your next big thing. So if you are crafting up something sweet, or really if you're doing anything that involves your attention, you know, driving kids home from Girl Scouts, or working, or cleaning the house, or just living life... Penguin Random House Audio has your ear. They've got loads of titles and they've curated a bunch of us just for us crafters in a special playlist. So you can go to tryaudiobooks.com slash crafter to find them. And uh, while you're there, why don't you just download yourself a little freebie? They are offering right now a book called Ivy and Inky the Butterfly by Johanna Basford. She is a fellow maker who has turned her work into kind of a magical tale that is great for all ages. So just go to tryaudiobooks.com crafter to download it and check out their other titles. This week on the show is modern quilt designer and author of Sew and Quilt, Techniques for Hand Stitching and Patchwork, Susan Beale. Susan and I have known each other since I first started in the craft industry a decade and a half ago. Back then, if you were a maker and also on the internet, you were automatically part of what was then a really small community of people. So during our conversation, we talk about the parallels in our professional and creative journeys, the influence community has had on our work, how craft can act as a conduit for our stories and acts of activism, and why it was important to Susan to write her latest book, Sew and Quilt. My girl Susan is my favorite kind of guest, one who is really passionate about creativity and who can really talk. Let's hear her now. Susan Beale, thank you so much for being on Craftish. Oh, Vicki, thanks so much for asking me. Well, it has been quite some time since we have caught up, but so I want to dive right in. I was I was noticing just reading over some of the stuff and researching that you you and I, of course, have many parallels and motherhood and crafty professionalism and being a part of crafty girl gangs and that kind of thing. But one, one thing that really stood out that I don't think I really paid attention to before is that both of us, the crafts that were arguably the most known for uh, you modern quilting and me knitting, we both did not actually learn how to do until we were around 26, even though we had been crafty since the minute we could hold a glue stick. I'm wondering what what was the impetus of you learning how to quilt at that age? That is such a cool parallel. I never realized it either because you're such a knitting superstar that, you know, you kind of have this idea that everyone else learned as a kid from their mothers or grandmothers or aunts or just like in some great like Girl Scout troop. I feel like we both kind of invented that now as adults. (laughs) But I just really, I love that because for me, I always wanted to learn how to sew. I was always a bit intimidated by the machine, like how you thread it and like worrying that, you know, I would like you know, just mess it up somehow. And both my grandmothers were very creative, but um, both of them passed away before I was really old enough to learn from them. But I have some precious things each of them made me when I was little, and I those are treasures. But I just didn't have that experience of learning when I was young. And in my immediate family, I was the only creative one. Like, I just took art classes all the time, and then I improvised things like stringing beads on dental floss and I'd buy like vintage clothes at the thrift store and then I'd kind of inexpertly hand sew to alter them. And um, it was funny. I wanted to take home ec in high school and learn, but the home ec teacher at my high school was mean. Mm-hmm. So I just took art classes instead because my friends who are in her class were just like, we spend all year making a gingham sloper. She gets really frustrated if your seam isn't perfect. Like we're never even getting to the point of sewing something pretty that you'd want to wear. So I just kind of figured, you know, I guess I missed my chance. But when I was 26, I had been living in Portland for three years. 
and I'd gone to jewelry making school and learned silversmithing and casting. And I loved that, but I just always loved fabric and color. And I just was still doing embroidery and sort of some hand stitching, you know, alterations. I made my then boyfriend, now husband, a pillow for his birthday with a drum set on the front. And I was just like, well, one day maybe I'll figure it out, but it just seemed so overwhelming. And then my best friend from high school came out to visit for a week and I got my courage up. I bought a $20 1960s aqua singer sewing machine from a thrift store on the Oregon coast. And she sat down with me and she was patient and kind, everything a beginner really needs. You know, she didn't scold me when I forgot to put the presser down, presser foot down again. She just encouraged me to keep going. If the bobbin ran out, she was like, that's a two second problem. So she took out that intimidation factor. And when she left, I remember we had sewn a pillow and curtains and a tote bag. And I even made a dress from a vintage simplicity pattern. And I was like, but when you leave, I'm, I don't know if I'll remember how to thread the machine. Like, what if I just totally stall and can't figure it out? And she drew me a handwritten diagram <laughs> how to thread it. And sure enough, by the second week, I had it memorized and I had my confidence up. But I think when you learn something as an adult, it's because you really, truly want to. And it's not just like, oh, I, I learned as a kid, but my teacher was mean or it was kind of boring or I never really got it. You're really longing for that, you know, craft and skill. And so it's kind of more precious in a way. Does that make sense to how you learned knitting and kind of opened up this whole new world? Yeah, you know, I've never thought about it in the terms of adulthood in that respect. I think that you're, you make an excellent point that absolutely, like you really have to want or else have a circumstance that forces you to, uh, to learn something when you're an adult. And especially when you're a mother, I was already, when I was 26, I had my first baby. So there was so much going on at that point for me. And, and yes, I mean, I happened to get you know, a friend also influenced me. She drug me down to the knitting store uh, saying that I was the craftiest person she knew and it was crazy that I wasn't jumping in on this knitting trend, you know? And so, um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that like you, I had a different perception of what the experience was going to be like learning. I did actually try and learn from my mom when I was, you know, eight, nine years old, and I hated it. I loved crochet. She also taught me that, uh, but for whatever reason, I hated it. And so I had these, you know, I sort of kind of turned my nose up at it and, and had the same sort of societal misconceptions about who knitters were as well. And so I went into this big gorgeous knitting store. And I don't think I'd ever been in a yarn store. We'd always bought it. Back in the day, you could buy yarn at Target. And then we would go, of course, to the Joann's and Michael's and that type of thing. And I had never been into a boutique store and even known that there was such a vast amount of supplies, a, div a diversity of fibers to work with, and also a community that was embedded in it. And so at that time, as an adult, when you're no longer in school, and especially as a new mother, I was desperately in need of a community, any form of a community, and absolutely always a creative outlet. Oh, totally. And it's really nice when you've always kind of had that, you know, creative, like, excitement, but you kind of, everything falls into place with, like, learning how to do something that is so... I mean, satisfying isn't really even the right word, but it's just like fulfilling and fun and you're wearing it the next day and you meet other people who are just as excited. And there's been so much, you know, of my friendships have come through creative projects and like first like message boards and websites and then moving into like, you know, the you know, just sewing get togethers. And I feel like the fiber arts have this community that I loved jewelry making and I still do, but there's, there's not that like deep community in that, in that craft. It's a, an incredible craft. I know people who are so skilled, but there just aren't, you know, these types of just really, you know, warm kind of typical like monthly guild meetings. And I just, I really love that about, you know, what I've seen my friends who have weekly knit nights, it's like keeps, you know, just going for 10 years. They, they're they still meeting on Tuesday nights. And I love that 
for me, my um, Portland Modern Quilt Guild has been an incredible, just a group of friends, but also just like endless inspiration every month, just seeing what other people make. That's so beautiful. And, you know, when we were growing up, you just, you wouldn't have seen, like, just as you said with the yarn, I mean, fabric was kind of that, like, Civil War reproductions and calicos. It wasn't that, like, you felt it and it was okay, but the hand wasn't great. And now fabrics are incredible and you can find so many more beautiful ones. And we're so lucky in Portland to have amazing independent fabric shops, but the hand of like a quilting cotton or like an apparel fabric or just really anything. Now you can find incredible quality stuff that, you know, 15 years ago was a lot harder to track down. That's, that's an interesting perspective because I live in Austin, Texas, as you know, and there are zero fabric stores, especially apparel fabric stores, There are some stores that have quilting. Actually, let me rephrase that. We have quilting stores that have quilting fabric, but we don't have great fabric stores, independent stores. I I rely, anytime I need a quick sewing fix, I, like most, rely on Joanne. We don't even have Hancock fabrics, obviously, because they all shut down. And so for me, I felt like as growing up... I grew up in Southern California, and there was a fabric store in our actual mall, like inside the fashion mall. There was there were so many more fabric stores that don't exist now. So from 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 my perspective, I feel like even though sewing is more accessible now because of the internet and digital patterns and the community itself and the voice that's there, for me, getting those supplies has become a lot more difficult. Oh, I know. And it's a really hard time for independent shops like bookstores and fabric stores and the ones that are still here. I just, I really appreciate supporting. I mean, we have a big Joanne near me too, and it's great, but, um, I really appreciate that we do have, like, I can walk to a fabric store and that, like, I remember when we found our house, I was telling my husband, like, this is like a lifetime dream. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> to a fabric store. But it's just, you know, I totally appreciate that because it's just, it it's all about where you are geographically. And if there are still, you know, a, a shop that's nearby a driver, you know, close enough to visit. And then and we've been lucky because in Portland, we have, um, just a really great uh, independent yarn and fabric shops and people plan trips to come, you know, just visit for the weekend, but like hit all the shops. And I totally, I love that. I think it's just, you know, if you can plan a plan, like the time and, and make a trip to get something special. When I have come to Austin for QuiltCon, which the last time was um, four years ago, I remember getting to go to like amazing places with Jennifer and with other friends. And it was just really, it's really special, you know, getting to, getting to go and find beautiful things to work with, but it's not maybe your everyday easy experience, unfortunately. Well, and since you've been here, those shops have since closed down. Stitch Lab, which I'm sure you probably went and you were talking about our friend Jennifer Perkins, uh, that's shut down. There was this beautiful store called Cloth Pocket. It's shut down. Um, oh, yeah. I remember Kim Kite mentioning Cloth Pocket. I'm so, yeah, it's just, we lost uh, Fabric Depot, which was our biggest independent fabric store. And oh, that was- I didn't realize that. Oh, that's a that's yeah, and we had our monthly uh, sew days there as a guild, and you know, fifty people would come out for, it. and then you know, we just all like sew and talk through the day, and it was really fun. But it was it was several acres of fabric, and that was a real loss. But we, um, you know, just it's a good it's a good way to just treasure what we have, you know, like remembering how, you know, these. Um, these stores are amazing. And the more we can support, you know, our independent stores as well as shopping, you know, at, at big shops that have everything, it's just good to have that balance where you're able to support and online. There are so many wonderful options and great, you know, just beautifully curated selections. And it's a nice, it's a nice reminder though, that these things are really precious. Yeah. And I think that that's also maybe lays that, that also maybe lays the groundwork for how we, how we approach our own supply buying as well. I mean, we've gotten so accustomed to quick fixes now, you know, because of the way that our society works. And I love them as much as the next person. But if we can even that out, just like with everything else in life, if we can find some moderation and really make mindful decisions that we are going to 
maybe pay a couple bucks more and maybe have to wait until we can get out of our you know house and go over to the store just to make that purchase with that local store to invest in our own communities that will reverberate and then we'll see more of them and, and then it'll actually become more convenient to do so because there'll be more and they'll be closer i just think we need to talk about it more Oh, I totally agree. I think those are, it's exactly what kind of we've all realized. I think as, you know, maybe in, in Austin, it's similar in Portland, you know, it's growing and changing fast. And so, you know, the small restaurants we used to go to are, you know, changing hands or closing down after a great 10 or 15 years and things change quickly. So, you know, kind of voting with our wallets in a way for, you know, helping independent shops and great resources stay afloat and with our support and with our like sharing how much we love what we found there, it really makes a difference. It's the moderation is the perfect analogy, I think. You mentioned earlier that you didn't feel like there was the same community, let's say live community versus virtual community with jewelry making as there is in quilting and sewing and knitting. Why do you think that is? That's such an interesting question. And what I found with when I went to jewelry making school, which I loved, but um, it's kind of like sewing can be, but kind of almost more so. It's kind of a solitary activity. You know, you're working maybe at a jewelry bench with an oxyacetylene tank or working with wax to do casting. And it's very technical. It's an incredible process. But it's not necessarily maybe as collaborative in terms of like – you know, uh, an in-person like get together. And while I've met some amazing people who are so kind, so talented, like who do all kinds of jewelry from beading and teaching classes to fine jewelry. And they're just amazing folks. I've never kind of seen that, you know, real kind of, uh, you know, social community come out of it. it. It's always really fun when I see folks that, you know, like for example, um, Crafty Wonderland, which is an amazing example of a shop here in Portland. Um, Tori Wynn and Kathy Zwicker started um, a twice a year craft fair as a monthly, kind of a smaller monthly show that was great around 2005. And it was just this incredible, like once a month, super fun, like indie craft fair. And it's evolved into an incredible twice a year show with over 200 vendors and now the two brick and mortar sh shops here in Portland both of them are incredible jewelry makers but there's just not like I, I see it as like a beautiful like craft and almost like a retail oriented craft if that makes sense right and not quite as much of like a get-together one thing that's been really fun though is I know you're also a Girl Scout parent is I've taught my um, juniors troop jewelry making for the jewelry um, the junior jeweler badge mm -hmm. My kids' um, classes from kindergarten on up, I've brought in, you know, everything from, like, fun, like, acrylic lucite beads that are colorful and, you know, bright and fun to, like, semi-precious stones when my daughter was studying rocks and minerals of Oregon with her third grade class and led jewelry making classes with kids. And I think there's so much there, but it just, it doesn't necessarily translate in something like knitting, crochet, sewing, embroidery, quilting, weaving, these crafts that kind of bring people, you know, maybe like literally like a, a quilting bee of 200 years ago, a hundred years ago. And now where women, primarily women would gather and work on projects, either one big project in the middle or bring their handwork and, and talk and, you know, widen the path for each other, like teach a new technique. Or as my friend, Sam Hunter, who's in my guild, gave a beautiful talk about quilts and quilt history and word quilts in particular um, at an art event we have called Outspoken Modern Quilts with um, at Portland State University. She said that what really resonates is that, you know, women would share like a recipe or like an older woman might be able to share tips for a new mom whose baby wasn't sleeping well, just that that was their time to really connect. Mm -hmm. And I see that today and, you know, how we have these deeper conversations over our embroidery or our hand stitching just is a show and tell at my guild. Like people will share the story of the quilt. And I don't know that every jewelry piece, as beautiful as it is, 
has quite as much of the personal in it, if that makes sense. Some obviously do, but I think there's some layers here that might be, you know, just kind of unique to something that's tactile that you touch and it's soft and colorful and beautiful. I don't know if, if you've had that sense, but it's really a kind of a special, um, special to our communities, I feel like so lucky to be part of. Something that occurred to me while you were talking that I'm not sure that I've ever really thought about before. Uh, often when I've talked about community and crafts uh, with folks, a lot of the, of the community aspect had to do, the live community aspect had to do with the mobility of the craft. But that is shattered when you talk about quilting because there's a lot of machinery involved. So what I'm, what I'm pondering now listening to you speak is that I wonder if some of it has to do with the inherent community that has always been a part of things that used to be considered, quote unquote, women's work, where folks or women had to get together, where they had to knit socks for their family, they had to sew the clothes for them, um, they had to embroider their stories onto pieces versus you would go to a villager, you know, you go to an artisan for a wood bowl or for a jewelry piece. It was more of a, you know, a luxury or even, you know, an early retail experience. Like the very foundation of those crafts may not be embedded in community the way that our crafts were. I agree from from just my perspective. And I love, you know, like women's history and, you know, the underrepresented stories of like women and people of color who created incredible things, but didn't get the publication or the visibility of, you know, say more high profile, like artists or craftspeople. And I think so much of what we see now that has been kind of like, you know, quilts handed down for generations that, you know, still have, um, you know, the brightness of the fabric, there's real, you, you know, it's their utilitarian in the sense that, you know, a lot of, a lot of women were making, you know, warm clothes, warm bedding, things that kept their family literally going. But one of the things I, I just read this book called the making of home that was really interesting. And one of the things that she said was that several hundred years ago, like almost half of a family's if they were lucky enough to have like a permanent shelter, if they were, you know, she was talking about primarily in Europe, but it was just really interesting. She said that almost half of a family's wealth was in their bedding and in what they had to keep themselves warm during mm. the winter. That's and fascinating. Now, yeah. Now today, you know, we can buy, you know, any kind of luxury that we want. It's a very different time. I mean, for, we have heaters. Yeah, we have heaters, we have electricity, we have the ability to go buy an inexpensive mass-produced imported comforter to keep us warm. But one thing I love is that um, seeing what people make, and I think, you know, obviously, like, what really opened my eyes to just the huge beauty of how diverse and interesting modern quilting was becoming as a, and I love traditional quilting. I find it, like, so just, I'm just very reverent of it. And what I love though now is that with first like Flickr and then now Instagram and other just ways to share online, we can just see these incredible, you know, other people's work. And it's just incredibly inspiring to see what, what people make and the inspirations and QuiltCon, for example, which, you know, is now an annual show. It was every two years when it started is mm -hmm. the Quilt Guild's um, quilt exhibit. And then this incredible like classes and lectures and they have a uh, retail set up on the floor. So it's, it's kind of this incredible four day, just visual extravaganza. It's beautiful. And um, what I haven't been able to go the last year. So, you know, just following along on Instagram, you're just seeing what other people make. And some of the stories that folks share about their quotes, they're political, they're powerful. They're, you know, deeply intimate about our personal experience. There's so much there. And I think a lot of us, you know, use our handcraft and what we're doing both as like a calming meditative, like part of our life that's really precious that recharges and sort of an edgy digital world, but also tells our stories. You know, we're not under the gun to like knit socks for a winter mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's like a, a rush, like this kind of make it as quickly as possible. It's getting cold. We have 
you know, if we can find, you know, these fabrics that speak to us or reuse, like I love reusing like older garments. I, you know, things my kids have outgrown or like scraps left over from sewing them clothes and make something special. There's just sort of a depth to it that I think is really, um, it's really beautiful. And even people I know who are just learning to sew now will say that rather than just feeling like maybe it's aspirational and it's just like totally, you know, this expensive hobby that's very, you know, there's, I think there's all kinds of ways to approach it, but I love that, um, hand sewing, quilting, knitting, all these things are finding folks who maybe didn't know how a few years ago, and now they're realizing how much it adds to their life and not necessarily like in a way that would have existed before things like Flickr, Instagram, um, you know, beautiful yarn being available in your town, as opposed to like, you know, spinning it yourself and dyeing it with natural colors. I think we have a lot, you know, just, there's a lot to just take in at this point. And it's just, it's kind of an incredible time, you know? Yeah. I want to lean in a little bit towards something that you, you mentioned um, when you were talking about not only people using quilting to tell their own stories, but also maybe promote political messages. And it's funny, I, so the last time I interviewed you formally was for my 2010 book, Craftish. I'm sorry, that's my podcast, you're on it. <laughs> my 2010 book, Craftcore. And oh, yeah. yeah, and, and um, you, were, you were talking about how a friend of yours uh, ran the Obama Craft Project. So that'll tell you how long ago this was. Um, and and I, wanted, I wanted you to speak a little more about because I remember during that time period how impassioned, m- much as they are now, how impassioned crafters were about getting a message out. I remember um, Denise Schmidt lost a litany of followers after she did a pro Obama quilt. And, you know, since then there's been the pussy hat and the knitting and crochet world. And there's been, all you know, all kinds of activism on on all sides. And I wonder if you would speak a little bit to what you think the power is in using any form of craft to either tell your story or share part of your soul in activism. You know, I have so appreciated seeing these kinds of powerful statements in craft and I mean, including ones that I don't personally agree with. I think that we all, we're living in a very polarized time. I I, I just, um, I remember Denise Schmidt's um, Yes We Can quilt and how beautiful that was. It's now in a museum collection. Um, it was, uh, it was uh, like a chance to win it for, I think, a $10 donation to the Obama campaign. And she drew a name and um, it's now in a permanent collection, which is so wonderful mm-hmm. because to me, that's a real piece of American history. And um, in speaking with, you know, I've gotten to take classes with her. She's an incredible teacher, but she's also like a very thoughtful person. And I think, you know, we've all evaluated like how much do we want to speak up? One thing I loved about like the Austin Craft Mafia that you and Jennifer Perkins and so many other of your amazing friends were in was in um, 2004. I remember you had um, postcards. Remember when you used to trade postcards we would send like. Oh, I do words back and forth and then we'd put them out on our tables or send them out in our orders um craft fairs and online sales and anything else but i remember that on your postcard and your ad in bust magazine that year you put in a little message don't forget to vote register to vote and i just i think there's so much need for us to speak our minds like to remind people that you know, may not be as passionate as we are, may just honestly, at this point, a lot of us are in survival mode, just, you know, with kids and work and, you know, our rent has essentially doubled in Portland in the last eight or 10 years since the recession and now this booming recovery for some. And so I think it's hard for everybody to be engaged politically. And I really respect that. But for those of us who are able to use what we do to raise awareness of, you know, uh, uh, you know, something that's, powerful and important to us, like, um, atrocities are, or just, you know, hunger in our community. Um, it goes beyond kind of a charity quilting approach, which my guild is, we're a huge guild of uh, last year had 350 paid members. And I've been so lucky to be part of this community, but at our last meeting last week, 
Um, our president did a tally and our guild collectively made over 200 charity quilts last year. Wow. There's so much meaning in that. And they go to shelters and um, families rebuilding after domestic violence or experiencing houselessness um, just to to kids who are in the NICU or are at, you know, a summer camp after losing a family member, like a a really beautiful way to, to support. There's also, I think, a lot of value in making strong statements with what we make. Um, bringing up Quilt Con again, there's an incredible quilt um, that used a square of a bright fabric like a yellow um, to represent every child who's been separated from their parents. And no matter what your thoughts are on our immigration policy at the moment, I think it's incredibly compelling to look at a quilt with these small squares of yellow everywhere, almost like looking at, you know, a city from a plane, these tiny little dots and and, and almost pixelated format. And then when you read the artist statement, it's incredibly powerful to see that each of those represents a child who is not with their family. And I personally, that speaks to me on many levels, but you know, you may not have had that cross your mind. And then, you know, in the last 24 hours, because it's not in front of you, and then you see a quote like that, and regardless of how you feel it's justified or not, that's powerful. It'll have a visual impact. You mentioned postcards and Austin Craft Mafia, which is a group I used to be in, and then you were in a group called Portland Super Crafty during around the same time. And both of those groups were really essentially marketing girl gangs i mean they were they were obviously we were supportive of each other and we were each other sort of you know within the group kind of our it was like having co-workers almost but but i always am so appreciative of that experience of trading links putting postcards in each other's orders you know going in on ads together i feel like it laid a groundwork and gave us an education that prepared us for today's grassroots feel of social media marketing that I don't think a lot of other people were privy to. Would you speak a little bit to your own sort of views about how marketing has changed during the course of your, you know, almost 20 year career? You know, that's such a great way to explain it because to me, Um, I originally got together with four friends, um, Tori Wynn and Kathy Zwicker, who I mentioned earlier, they now own Crafty Wonderland. Um, Rachel O'Rourke, who's an art therapist, and Nedra Rosinas, who is a web designer and does all kinds of projects. And originally, it was just really like, let's pull our resources and put an ad in Bust or like, you know, just put a website up together. And so it's not just like everybody's having to do all the you know, kind of lonely work themselves and we can lift each other up and then connecting with other groups like Austin Craft Mafia is so dynamic and fun. And, you know, we ended up, you know, just so much, you know, just so much deeper and richer of an experience than just like, you know, promoting your own work by yourself and having friends who are doing the same thing and and being supportive of them. But I think it added a lot to, I mean, just speaking for, for me, I just, it added a lot to my life and I really appreciated that. So what I thought was really special about it was I'm really a terrible self-promoter. I don't enjoy it. It's, it's like, I'd so much rather talk about someone else's work or, I mean, I love what I do, but I don't like having to like, you know, kind of continue to promote myself and put it out there. And so banding together is so much more like about community and it's warm and fun. And you're kind of like just getting to talk with your friends as well as yourself. So, you know, we were both so fortunate in our parallels to have um, some great opportunities come out of it. In addition to doing things like renegade craft fair and, and traveling together to different to different craft fairs and events around, you know, different parts of that kind of early heady days of like, you know, a couple times a year, you might take the big trip to do a renegade New York city or, you know, go to Seattle for urban craft uprising and you could share the booth fee and like really like speak to each other's like strengths by making like a great display of everybody's work. Um, what I love is that it also, I was really fortunate to be part of super crafty, um, in terms of getting to this unexpected offer to write a 
craft book together. And so four of us teamed up to write this book called Super Crafty, and it was such a labor of love, and I love that book. And um, I know that y'all were able to host a TV show, and it was just like this really amazing time for just, you know, getting to share what we did and these platforms that, you know, from kind of like the one woman business is just like a really incredible opportunity, you know? It really was. It was incredible. I always, you know, I often think about if I would be able to have the career that I have now, if I were starting now, you know, when we, when we started, there were quite literally only 10 craft sites in, in the U.S. up and it was pre-blogging. It was so much easier to be found and seen. I mean, for us to get a TV show with relatively little auditioning and, you know, now it's so difficult to get book deals in the craft world for us, you know, for you guys to be given a book deal. And by the way, absolutely, absolutely deserved it. But it was just not, it was not, we didn't have to attack it the way that you have to attack it. We didn't have to hustle for it the way that you have to hustle for it. And yet we did hustle for the marketing and that sort of loops me back to what, you know, my original question is just how marketing has changed and how so many artists like you despise self-promotion, but now it's become crucial with even the smallest of business. Local mom shop on the corner must do live videos if they want to survive in today's climate. Mm-hmm. And I just feel grateful that we had a foundation laid for that. Um, I want to move over and talk about your most latest book. I misspoke earlier and said that you learned how to quilt when you were 26, and it was actually so. And I wanted to talk about that. And that sort of is a bridge towards your your latest book, So Plus Quilt, Techniques Plus Projects plus, uh, for Hand Stitching Patchwork and Patchwork. Um, it's a beginner's guide. And you say in it that you really wanted to write the book that you wish that you had had when you were learning. So you spoke a little bit before about how your friend um, Fiona had taught you how to sew. Um, We did not talk about how you really moved towards quilting. And so maybe we should start there before we delve into the book. What was what was the gateway into that? Because I, it's funny, I when I think of you professionally now, I see beautiful, modern, cool quilts. And and I was looking back at the the Craftcore interview that I mentioned earlier, and you said that the things that spoke creatively most to you then, you know, nine years ago, were jewelry, and then you were really into um, uh, gaco printing. And so, oh, I loved gaco printing. Yeah, printing. Thank you. And and so so when did when did quilting come in? Because when I met you, you were known for for jewelry, but also really those skirts. Everybody was wearing your skirts. So, so so let's, 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 before we dive into why you wrote this book and then what's in this book, uh, Sew Plus Quilt, why don't you share when that, you know, love of sewing, which is, can be a little more free form, moved over to quilting, which is way more finite. um, And, but also offers a huge opportunity for the storytelling that you've been um, talking about. Oh, totally. And I think everybody has their own path as, you know, you've described like as a new mother learning to knit and it's just really, it's incredible when we do open those doors, you know, or get the chance to after, you know, like maybe, you know, trying it, being a little intimidated or it didn't stick. Um, And then, when it finally clicks or when you do have that chance, it's, it's just kind of life changing in the best way. But what happened with me is I know, um, a lot of quilters started as quilters, maybe as kids or, but they're literally their first sewing was patchwork. And so to them, you know, I've chatted with friends and my girls who don't want to make garments because it sounds like it's too hard, like putting in zippers or darts or kind of just the complexity of working with other fabrics. Like, it just, they make incredible quilts that I'm wowed by, but it's interesting. We all have our, our places that we're not as confident yet, or, you know, if we haven't, you know, tried it or, or it sounds harder from what you're used to. But for me, I learned sewing for kind of, um, you know, making pillows, making a 
dress or a skirt or a handbag first. And so that was really natural to me. And I have always loved simple projects. I love efficient patterns and, you know, just making something that's beautiful, but not, you know, thousands of pleats and yards of fabric in a single dress. Um, you know, something that's really like wearable and fun. And so with quilts, I remember just, I've always loved them. I have a few family quilts that I really treasure, um, from generations back. Um, I love my baby quilt that my grandmother and some of her friends from church made when I was born. It's a trip around the world pattern. That's like an, it's a very traditional pattern, but you may have seen it in Amish quilting. It's really beautiful. And it kind of came back in this Instagram, um, you know, kind of like flood around 2013 as like a scrappy trip around the world. But at that point, when I learned how to sew, it was still a bit of that. Um, it was in 2000 and it was a bit of that like civil war reproduction prints, um, you know, there weren't many like really modern fabrics or beautiful colors. It was kind of a muddy um, palette at the time and not bad, but not necessarily my style. And so I remember, you know, when Amy Butler's book came out in stitches, I loved a quilt pattern in the book, but it was so, it wasn't a beginner quilt, you know, tons of steps. It was styled beautifully on the page, but almost looked like a catalog. You couldn't see like a full shot of the quilt flat. So it wasn't quite as easy to see the construction. So I was totally intimidated. And then I remember Denise Schmidt quilts came out from Chronicle and mm-hmm. I like that is what I want to make. And it's so funny. I've had the book for 15 years. I've never made a quilt from it. I've taken her classes since, and I love her style, but just looking at it, I was like, that is the quilt that, that inspires me. Her work is just beautiful. It's like, it marries so much rich tradition. Um, she uses these American patterns that have taken on so much resonance over, you know, a hundred, 150 years, but she makes them her own and she uses so many like vibrant colors, but in unexpected, interesting ways, there's not this sort of matchy feel and there's hand in it. And she's also like an incredibly talented, she went to RISD and has this incredible design eye. So it's kind of the best of every world. And I'm a huge fan of hers, but I remember thinking like, wow, okay, I could do this. And I remember when her first fabric collection came out, it was called Flea Market Fancy. And it was, I just loved it. And I bought a fat quarter set of the whole thing. And I was just, I remember holding the fabric together, like, oh, this is what I would make. I would love to make a quilt with this, but like, how would I put it together? And finally, I kind of got my courage up and I mixed um, a few vintage fabrics that I had and a couple of other quilting patterns. And I made what, um, I didn't even, I don't even know if at the time I was probably 29 or 30, if I even knew what log cabin, what I was doing was log cabin. Like I pictured those really traditional, like sunshine and shadow, dark and light, like the vibrant kind of geometric overall quilt patterns that I'd seen in antique and vintage quilts. But what I did was I cut out a square of a vintage fabric with little birds on it that I loved from the fifties. And I surrounded it with strips of, um, reclaimed Levi's quarter from a pair of my husband's pants that I've worn out and I could cut long strips from the part of the fabric that was so good. And then I added flea market fancy and a couple of other prints all around it. And what's a square within a square setting, like a more modern kind of an oversized center, like a framing effect. And it was so much fun. I was not nervous. I felt like I had been, you know, waiting to do this until just the right idea came and it just all came together so fast. And then within about an hour, I had made a second one in darker colors using flea market fancy and corduroy from a brown pair of pants instead of the tan and the lighter tones. And I still have both those pillows. I love them. And I remember putting them on my couch at just that same evening and feeling like, wow, this is what I want to make. Mm-hmm. And so with um, using fabrics like hers and that design sensibility, it really opened up how you could make a quilt. Cause I was nervous about like angles and Y seams. And if I cut it wrong or if the fabrics were too busy together. And I think when you free yourself from those kind of like, it has to be like a really complex pattern with like a lot of, you know, careful cuts and careful joints and you just use straight line quilting. It opens up this chance to make something personal and beautiful, but that isn't hard. It just, it's enjoyable and the process is like creative and you don't have to, like I imagine feels like with knitting, when the pattern, you get it and you're just kind of flying through it. You can chat with friends, you're enjoying it. You're not having to like put it down and stare at the pattern make sure you're in the right place or you didn't miss something. And so for me, what I loved about it was that it, it just like, it became part of my world. Um, I will say it was hilarious. Um, I could not actually believe that you would use a quarter inch seam. <laughs> 
after all the years of garment sewing with like the five eighths being yeah, yeah. bag, I was like a quarter inch. How's it even going to stay together? That's tiny. And now it's like something perfect. Well, you don't have to let it out for anybody. Yeah. And then <laughs> a friend told me after I was saying how I couldn't believe it. And it was like so much, that was the biggest hurdle. Like, really? That's tiny. And she was like, I sewed my whole first quilt with five eighths. Oh, that's five funny. That's funny. So she ended up with this amazing, but like very like bulky kind of intense patchwork. But hey, man, at first quilts, you know, those are precious. It's just, it's really cool to see how, you know, keep those things. And um, one of the things that I love, uh, I don't know if you've had this experience too, but um, if you look back at your old projects, there's just so much there. It's not like you're like, oh, I did such a bad job or, you know, look at how, you know, I didn't even realize that when you quilt um, the pillow front, for example, those first two pillows I made, I didn't put a piece of muslin behind the batting. I just quilted it right over batting without putting fabric underneath. I mean, it's the inside of a pillow. It's really not like the biggest issue but now of course I know that you put you know backing on a quilt block that you're making into a pillow or a mini quilt or you know you just wouldn't you know skip that step but I think the euphoria of learning it's almost like fun to see your early kind of like the way you did something when you were a beginner and see how far you've come or it's like a little note back to yourself you know, decade or two earlier. And I keep sketchbooks that I really love and that have been a really huge part of recording what I'm doing. And I love looking back and seeing what, you know, the first time I made something and, and then like the series of quilts I've made that are similar since it's just like, they're all cousins, um, kind of in that journey. So it's, it's interesting being a beginner as an adult, like you were saying earlier too, but I love quilting now, but yeah, I I remember being in intimidated and so when I put sew and quilt together as even like an idea in a book proposal I really wanted to start with a hand stitching and embroidery and move into simple sewing and then patchwork is like that that flow because I would have been intimidated probably you know just to pick up a book that was like beginning patchwork even if it wasn't challenging and hard just because I think you know if you all you want to learn is quilting you can skip to the you know the quilt section and just just make it one today it's definitely an accessible beginner friendly project but I kind of wanted to build a bridge that started with the simplest process of like five embroidery stitches if that's where you're at and it was funny when I turned in everything my editor Carolyn who's great she was like oh wow you gave me two books well I mean but it doesn't feel like I mean yes it's a ton of material but it feels very cohesive I mean one of the things that I think you think so awesome I I think that one of the things that you've done beautifully you know with your photographer and your designer is created something that's really visually beautiful and especially now in the Instagram Pinterest world we live in just creating that um that desire, that like attraction to a piece is the first step, you know, it's, it's, it's aspirational, but you've, you've then broken it down into tools and, and steps you, and then you've done, you've thrown in a couple of nods to trends. Like right now, Shishiko embroidery is, is very big. Um, and you've created sort of a modern, you know, platform for some of the more traditional techniques that are used in quilting and bias tape making. um, And you've sort of melded them together so that they feel like you almost don't feel it's as if you are in a, you know, sort of like a warm pool of water, and it's with a graduating, you gradually get deeper and deeper and deeper until you're ready to flow. And I I really think it's a, a beautiful start for anybody that wants to do some handiwork. What do you hope that your readers take away from sew and quill and and really all of your work? You know, I love the feeling of connecting with people and, and just, you know, the books that have inspired me, the classes that have inspired me are just, they really, they're just like these jewels in your life. And I feel like to me, if people are inspired to make a project from the quilt, from the quilts or, and, and put their own spin on it. And I've already started seeing what I am, so excited about and I've been reposting on my Instagram and this is what I imagined is seeing people make their own versions their favorite colors maybe they love purple the entire quilt could be you know just that beautiful shades that I wouldn't have been drawn to but I hope it's inspiring and fun and that it gets people who may have been a bit intimidated like that much more confident and excited to keep going or try their own new things 
Well, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, Susan. Oh, thanks so much, Vicki. It's such a joy to get to catch up. And I really appreciate your, just your compliments and kindness for the book. And, you know, we really are, are so lucky to be part of something so special. For more information on Susan Beale and her book, go to her show notes page at VickiHowell.com slash craftish. All right, now it is time for my new-ish segment called What I'm Crafting To. It's a special partnership with Penguin Random House Audio. And really, it's just me sharing what I'm listening to or watching or what's keeping me entertained and inspired while I am making during the week. So I am uh, listening to a bunch of stuff. Uh, music right now, I just discovered this week. I'm not sure how. It might have just been, you know, one of the like Spotify Discover things, or I really don't know how I found this artist, but gorgeous, gorgeous music by Seattle based solo artist Mike Kader- Hadrias, I think is how you pronounce his name, but his stage name is Perfume Genius. And specifically, I've been listening on repeat to his song, Alan Rework. It's so beautiful. Um, if you like sort of like lyrical, ethereal songs, um, from a man by with a gorgeous voice, you should definitely check it out. So it's Perfume Genius. Podcasts, I've been listening to a few. Um, I listen quite frequently to a podcast put out by Vox called Today Explained. And, you, and really, it just it talks about some form of current event that's happening, um, either in pop culture or business or politics, and kind of breaks it down for you. And then I'm also listening to uh, one of my dear friends has a kind of newer podcast called Creative Queso. Jennifer Perkins uh, put together this, this podcast, and I'm actually going to be a guest on it um, imminently, I think this week, but maybe next. And it's a, it's a great, it's another great conversations podcast. She often deals with different aspects of creative business. So check both of those out wherever you find your podcasts. Audiobooks, I just downloaded um, the book Wise Guy Lessons from a Life by Guy Kawasaki. If you're not uh, familiar with Guy Kawasaki, he's a marketing guru and he's famously known for his groundbreaking work for Apple. He was on the original Macintosh team. Um, he's also the co author of my favorite marketing tactical guide. It's called The Art of Social Media. And it was co written by Peg Fitzpatrick, who's another sort of amazing social media guru. So Wise Guy is a non-traditional memoir consisting of a series of vignettes and accounts of of Guy's young life in Hawaii as the grandson of Japanese immigrants and the inspiring experiences that have taken him through an impressive, I mean, to say the least, really, career and venture, capital marketing, entrepreneurship, and business evangelism. So you can get that at tryaudiobooks.com, that's tryaudiobooks.com, or wherever you download your audiobooks. Craftish is produced in Austin, Texas by me, Vicki Howell, and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by our friends over at Explosions in the Sky. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend. And if you have a minute, I wouldn't say no to a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, please, and thank you. If you are a knitter or an author in any genre at all and are also planning on coming out to South by Southwest here in Austin in March, I would love, love, love it if you'd stop by the knitting meetup and or the authors meetup, both of which I'll be hosting. So if you're coming, just look me up in the, I was going to say brochure like we were old school, but on the South by website um, and I hope to see you there. So make sure that you refresh your feed until next Thursday for another new episode of Craftish. And until then, make sure that you take a little time for yourself to be creative and put something positive out into the world. Breathe in, craft out.